Turn this morning to Matthew chapter 19, and uh, just have to give you a brief um, explanation of where we're going to go this morning with this. Uh, So I know uh, many of you uh, live in a world where Bud Light and Target is is on the news, and I'm assuming we all know why. There's a lot of confusion uh, about these topics in our culture. I also happen to be our classes' representative to Synod this year, and so I've read through the entire 650-page agenda uh, for our Synod this year. And with all of that in my heart and mind, knowing that you know people who experience same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria, and I'm reading all about that, I turn to Matthew chapter 19. And when we read the verses we have prepared here today, you'll see why um, we're going in the direction that we're going this morning. Uh, so let me open up to that. I'm sure you're already all there. And let us hear the word of the Lord together this morning. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we we pray the words of that song that we just prayed, that you would show us Christ, that we would be moved by your glory more than any other thing in this life, that we would recognize that there is no other place to go but to you because you have the words of eternal life. God, I pray that you would speak to us, help us in our confusion, confirm us in what we know is true through your word and your word alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Matthew chapter 19 is actually Jesus' longest and most clear teaching about the topic of divorce. But we're going to hold off on that topic until next week, uh, because before we can talk about divorce, we're going to need to take a moment this morning to consider what it means to be male or female. We're also going to consider what marriage actually is. And my prayer is, and this has been my prayer this entire time, is that we would all simply stand under the immense clarity of God's Word. Sexuality and gender and marriage are all subjects that are very important to God. And we should not think that God is somehow unable to communicate clearly to us about topics that are very important to Him. This morning, not only are we going to see how clear He is on these topics, but we're also going to see why these topics are so important to him. They have everything to do with us understanding who he is and what he's like. 
It's so easy to get sidetracked by the cultural voices all around us that we can lose sight of the fact that God has spoken and that we, as weak and frail Christians, can have confidence in what he has said. Here's our outline this morning. First, we're going to see that God designed us either male or female. There are two genders. Next, we're going to see what it means to be male and female. And so when somebody designs something, it's always designed for a purpose. The same is true about male and female. And then finally, we're going to see how to love our culture well, well as male and female. So first, God designed us as male and female. If you've paid any attention recently to the media, you know that the current dominant philosophy of our culture is that gender is a social construct, which means that the biological sex we were born with should have no bearing on our gender identity. So for example, if someone is born with female body parts, but she feels more male in her gender identity, she has what is called gender dysphoria. And to love someone with gender dysphoria like this, we're told by our world um, that if she's going to flourish as a human being, she should live as a male. She should live as the gender identity that she identifies with. In fact, we're actually told that it could be psychologically harmful for her if we do not encourage her to live as a male. And so where this gets really difficult for Christians is we're told that if we have loved ones, whether that's a friend, a family member, or a child who has gender dysphoria, if we are going to love that person well, we must accept them as the gender that they identify with. And since we do love them, and since we would never in the world want to reject them because we love them, and because we want to be kind to them, and because it's clear and obvious that they are suffering, we find ourselves unsure of what to do. Because all the experts, right? All the experts are telling us, the doctors, the scientists, and the psychologists are telling us this. And we sort of feel like we should trust the experts. And if we're honest, there is something that seems sort of at least merciful and kind about that. But there's also an avalanche of scientific evidence to suggest that they would be better off living as the gender that they were born as. So how do we decide? which expert to trust. That is why we need the clarity of God's word. Listen to Jesus in our passage. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the question being dealt with here is divorce. 
And the Pharisees, as we'll talk about next week, all the reasons why they're even asking this question, they ask, is it lawful to divorce one's spouse for any reason? And Jesus essentially says, no, it is not lawful to divorce one's spouse for any reason, because what God has joined together, no man ought to separate. We should not undo something that God has done. Now, this doesn't mean, as we'll also see next week, that every time somebody gets divorced, they are necessarily sinning. But it does mean that we cannot just get divorced for any reason that we want. Because God intends marriage to be a relationship that lasts a lifetime, and what he has joined together, we should not separate. But before Jesus gets to that conclusion, he begins his argument in verse 4 by identifying the parties that make up a marriage. He says, from the beginning, God made them male and female. And so Jesus is building up to his conclusion about marriage by first pointing out that God made humans either male or female from the beginning. He begins with this fact because marriage is a relationship between one male and one female. And then he builds on that with an even fuller definition of marriage. A marriage is when a man leaves his parents and then enters into a one-flesh union with a woman who becomes his wife. Which means, according to Jesus, in this passage, marriage is a one-flesh union between one man and one woman. For those who would suggest that Jesus has not spoken on this topic, here he is speaking so clearly. And when Jesus spoke these words, this was not in dispute. These words were not even controversial. In fact, he intends to use two very uncontroversial arguments about unchanging realities that God has set up that everyone could agree with, and he's using those two arguments in order to, to come to his airtight conclusion about divorce, which is that since marriage is a one-flesh union between one man and one woman created by God, we cannot get divorced for any reason that we want because what God has joined together no man should separate. So we learn three very important things here. First, we learn what God, or that God designed human beings as either male or female. That God designed marriage as a one flesh, lifetime relationship between one male and one female. And that human beings should not undo what God has done. So let's think about the logic here. If human beings should not undo the marriage relationship that God has done, human beings also ought not undo what God says marriage is, and human beings certainly ought not undo the binary that God created from the beginning. That is the logic of this passage. Jesus' first argument in verse 4 comes from Genesis chapter 1, where we read this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So human beings are the only creatures created in the image of God. And to be in the image of God means we are like God in some way. It also means we are made to represent God. God made us so that all of creation 
could see something of what God is like through us. That is why sin is such a big deal. We were made to be like God and to tell creation what God is like, but God doesn't sin, so when we sin, we're lying about what God is like, which is why God is angry about sin. Because not only were we created in the image of God, but we were created as either male or female to reflect the image of God. And as male and female, together we reflect the image of God. So our maleness or our femaleness is at the very core of our identity. That's why Jesus says, from the beginning. That word beginning there is meant to take us all the way back to our creational identity. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Jesus is is hinting at that. In the beginning, God made them male and female. Because our identity is all the things about us that make up the very essence of what we are. So if you have a chair, you can take the armrests away. Guess what? You still have a chair. You can even take the legs away, and you might still have a chair. But if you took the seat away, you would no longer have a chair. Because a seat is part of what the essence is of a chair. And so when God says he made us male or female in his image from the beginning, he's saying that our maleness or our femaleness is part of the essence of the nature of what we are. And we were designed to be either male or female. We were designed with a nature or essence of either maleness or femaleness. And no one ever designed something without a purpose. So when God made us male, he designed us with a male nature to serve a male purpose that only a male could serve. And the same thing for females. Just like when a car manufacturer makes a truck or a van, they're both vehicles, just like human beings. You know, men and women are both humans. But they are either a truck kind of vehicle, right, or a van kind of vehicle. Each one was designed to be what they are, and no one designs anything without a purpose. A truck is designed to carry heavy loads, which means its very nature is that it's the kind of vehicle that carries heavy loads. Vans were designed to carry more passengers. By its very nature, it's the kind of vehicle that we can all go somewhere together in. If we wanted to all go somewhere together, we would take the van and not the truck. The same thing is true about God's design for male and female. Just like a truck was designed for a purpose, a man was designed with a purpose. Just like a van was designed for a purpose, a woman was designed for a purpose. But what if somebody is born male and identifies as a woman? What would be wrong with him changing himself so he could fulfill the purpose of a woman? Well, the first reason is that we should not undo what God has done. We should trust God's clear purpose and design more than our feelings. We know God speaks to us in nature, and we know our hearts are deceitful above all else. The second reason is he cannot fulfill the purpose of a woman, because that's just not what he is. It's not what he was designed for. You might be able to hammer a nail in with a shovel, 
but it's not what it was designed for. You might be able to put a whole lot more people in the back of a truck than you can even put into a van, but it's not the purpose of a truck. And because it's not the purpose, it's actually dangerous, and we shouldn't do it. Maybe you do it in an emergency to get a group of people out of a forest fire, but it goes against the nature of what a truck was designed for. He can't change himself to fulfill the purpose of a woman because his maleness is part of his essence. And loving him, loving him, would be to encourage him to embrace God's design for himself. To trust that God knows what he was doing when he made him a man. And we shouldn't lie to him either, that he's really a woman. We shouldn't encourage him to covet being a woman. Now, in order to see why this is all true, now we need to look at what the Bible has to say about our unique natures as either a man or a woman, which takes us to our second point. What does it mean to be male or female? So God's design for us as either male or female is to fulfill a purpose. Just like a car manufacturer designs a truck or a van for a distinct, unique purpose. But what are the purposes of being a male? What are the purposes of being female? Have we just constructed all those purposes as a society? Or is there something built into our design? Well, Genesis chapter 1, God gives us this broad, sweeping uh, explanation of creation. But in Genesis 2, God tells us about creating the first man and the first woman. The first man was created from the dust of the earth, we're told. And, there was, uh, and he was given the task of naming animals and taking care of the garden. But even though he was surrounded by animals, there was no one like him and he was alone. And God says it wasn't good for him to be alone. And so we read, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now much ink has been spilt about what it means that God gave the woman to the man as his helper. But I don't think it's really as difficult as it seems. The man was given the task, and he could not do it alone. And so God gave him a companion to help him with the task. The man was designed for the task. The woman was designed to help him with the task. The word doesn't mean the woman is somehow less than the man. In fact, this word is used later in the Old Testament to describe how God helps us. So, since there was no helper fit for him, God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and then made the woman from his side. So, Genesis chapter 2 teaches us that the woman was created from man and for man. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. The point is, at the very least, we should all agree that it is clear that God has a unique purpose and design for maleness and a distinct purpose and design for femaleness. The next thing that happens in the Bible to make this same point is the fall and how God's consequences are different depending on whether we are a male or a female kind of human. So after Adam and Eve sin, 
in Genesis chapter 3, we read this. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So notice the consequences for the fall are different for us based on whether we have a female nature or a male nature. Now why would that be? Well, we are to see here that what it means to be a woman is frustrated by the fall. Before sin, her desires were exactly the same as her husband's. But now she desires something different than him. And instead of leading her with love, her husband will rule over her. She will express her contrary desires, and he will come over the top of her with force. And bringing children into the world will be suffering for her. And as every mother knows, this isn't just talking about giving birth. This is talking about raising them and training them as well. We also see that what it means to be a man is frustrated by the fall. He will have conflict with his wife now. So instead of being able to perform his task, he has to deal with this conflict. And he's not going to deal with it very well, we're told. And the garden that he was supposed to take care of is now a barren land full of thorns and thistles. He'll have to work hard just to eat and provide. Which means the nature of a woman is to be oriented toward her husband and her children. And because of the fall, that is frustrated. And the nature of a man is to be oriented toward his work. And where before his wife would help him, now she's working against him, and the garden is full of thorns and thistles. And from this point on in Scripture, the distinct design and purpose for men and women is on display throughout the pages of Scripture. You go to Leviticus and you read about the uh, ceremonial laws. Well, they're different for men and women. In fact, God makes it very clear that men should not be confused with women and women should not be confused with men. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read this. Does not nature itself teach you? That if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, I will admit there is a lot going on in 1 Corinthians 11. But again, at the very least, what I want us to notice here is that Paul appeals to the fact that there is a male nature and a female nature, and that is it is a disgrace for a man to appear as a woman in nature. Listen to these words from Peter. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. See, there's something so distinct about the nature of a woman that Peter refers to her as the weaker vessel. Now, this isn't weaker like somehow a woman is less valuable. This is weaker like a, a piece of fine china is weaker than a hammer. She was made different by nature. 
She's not less valuable, but something about her nature as a woman in comparison to a man is weaker. And the most obvious, indisputable evidence of this fact is physical strength. Even Paul's instructions to husband and wives from Ephesians 5 that we read earlier for our call to confession teach us that there is something fundamentally different about men and women. Men, because we are tempted to use our power and position to rule over our wives, are commanded to love our wives, to lay down our lives for them, as Christ laid down his life for the church. And women, because they are tempted to be contrary to their husbands, are commanded to submit to their husbands. This is not easy for either one. But because we are fundamentally different in nature and design and purpose, God gives each of us different instructions to help us see where we will each need to work in our relationship with each other in order to be conformed to his will. Men as men have different temptations than women as women. We cannot change our design or our nature. We cannot change our purpose that flows out of that design. Because we must not undo what God has done. Which takes us to our final question. How do we love our culture well as either a male or a female? So if God designed us male or female, and if God has a specific purpose for us as either a male or a female, then actually it's living into our design and purpose It's in doing that that we actually love our culture well. Our being who God made us to be is the best way to love our neighbor. That's the best way to show our culture what God is like. Because God had a reason for making us either male or female. And since God is spirit, he's not male or female. There is something about what a man is like that helps us understand better what God is like. And there's something about what a woman is like that helps us understand better what God is like. So for God's sake, as his image bearers made to represent him, we should be who he made us to be. There's also something about how we relate to each other as male and female that shows what God is like and how God relates to us. This is why God uses male pronouns for himself. Again, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So when Jesus, the Son of the living God, humbled himself and became a human, he placed himself under the authority of God. And every man is under the authority of Christ. And when a woman marries a man, she places herself under the authority of her husband. Just like Jesus placed himself under the authority of God when he became a human. Do you see that? One of the reasons God created us, male and female, is so that we could portray to the watching world what it is like for someone to lovingly lead another person who is their equal in value and glory 
and for someone to submit to another person who is their equal in value and glory. Isn't that amazing? Only as men and women in marriage, in a relationship to each other, can we understand what it meant for Jesus to become a human. Literally, the gospel depends on us being who God made us to be. Marriage is meant to be a portrait of how God related to Jesus when Jesus became one of us, and it's only possible when one man is married to one woman for life. Also, marriage is a picture of how Jesus relates to the church. This is what Paul means at the end of Ephesians 5 when he concludes his teaching on marriage this way. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Friends, this is why it is so important to be who God created us to be. This is why it is so important that marriage is what God says it is. This is why a man cannot marry a man or a woman cannot marry a woman. That would be like the church marrying the church or Christ marrying himself. That picture simply does not say what God intends to say with marriage because it's not what marriage is. As men and women together, we come to know what God is like. And in a marriage relationship with each other, where a man loves his wife and lays down his life for her, like Christ loved the church and laid down his life for us, and where a woman submits to her husband in everything, only in that kind of relationship can we reflect to a lost and dying world what it's like to be in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Our gender identity and our marriages are not about us. They're not about how we feel. They're not about what we want. And if we undo what God has done, we're lying about God. And so the best way we can love this culture is if you're a man, be a man. If you're a woman, be a woman and love being the woman that God says you are. Love being the man that God says you are. Lean into all the fullness of your nature. And if you're here this morning and you're unmarried, until you get married or if you never get married, you are called to point forward to what our eternal union with Christ will be like. You are called to enter the life of the church because it is the whole church together that is the bride of Christ. And you as an unmarried person are called to point the watching world to our hope of living forever and eternal devotion to Christ. Marriage points to what that relationship is like now and celibacy points to what it will be like then. That's why Matthew 19 later, Jesus will say this. He says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs 
who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have, been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So a eunuch is someone whose sex organ no longer works properly and they cannot have children. And eunuchs were not married. And Jesus is using the term to describe anyone who is unmarried. And he says there are some who are eunuchs from birth. This would include hermaphrodites. There are those who've been made eunuchs through forced castration. In our current culture, this might now include those who detransition back to the gender they were born as. And then there are those who make themselves eunuchs or who have the gift of celibacy and remain unmarried. And according to Jesus, an unmarried person, whether they are born unable to marry, whether they are made unable to marry, or whether they choose not to marry, are all in that situation for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. There's a purpose in it, something rich and meaningful that we can all lean into, whether we're married or unmarried. The purpose of singleness, and we're all single for a season, is to come directly under the loving headship of Jesus Christ through the church and to point forward to what the kingdom will be like, where there will be neither marriage nor giving in marriage. And when all of us are unmarried and living directly under the loving headship of Jesus, and if you're unmarried here this morning, whether you will get married one day or not, the purpose of your singleness at this time in your life is so that you might devote your time, energy, and effort to the kingdom of God. So to some degree, you will devote yourselves to the church to the same level of devotion that you see married couples having to each other. That's God's intent, intention for singleness. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy and body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. See, Paul has great advice for married and unmarried. As an unmarried person, we are to be holy and body and spirit, devoted to the things of the Lord. And as a married person, we are to be faithful and devoted to our spouse. Either way, we are showing the world what it's like to be a church waiting for Christ to return. We take up our cross and follow him, whether that's a difficult marriage or if you're unmarried and long to be married. We wait for him in our loneliness, in our struggle with addiction, in our struggle with lust and pornography, in our struggle with greed and anger, in our struggle with pride and vanity, and yes, even in our struggle with same-sex desire or gender dysphoria. We are to die to ourselves and live for Christ in line with his design and purpose for us. Because his commands are not burdensome. In fact, his yoke is e easy and his burden is light. So if all this is true then, what is the hope for someone struggling with same-sex desire or gender, gender dysphoria? 
It's the gospel. That's their hope. It's not that they will someday get married or experience fulfillment this side of heaven or be able to completely change their desires even this side of heaven. It is a legitimate calling to be unmarried for the kingdom. No, their hope is the same as everyone's hope. You see, the good news of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection means that through faith and with repentance, we can receive all the promises of God in Christ, forgiveness of sin, freedom from the power of sin, a new nature, citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, the hope of eternal life, And why would we choose a sinful identity or a sinful relationship over that? And why would we encourage anyone to choose a sinful identity or a sinful relationship over forgiveness, freedom, being a kingdom citizen, or the hope of eternal life? You see, same-sex desire and gender dysphoria are no different than any other sin. We all feel lonely. We all feel like we're in the wrong body. I remember when I was a kid going through puberty, I, I gained like 30 pounds. I just felt so awkward in my body. And I'm so glad my culture wasn't telling me that the reason I felt awkward was because I really was supposed to be a girl. We're all groaning and longing to be different in some way than what we are right now because of sin. We all feel there's something wrong with us that needs to be transformed. That is not a unique experience. One day we will all transition through death into eternal life in Christ if we will repent of our sin and put our trust in Jesus. And Jesus knows this desire too, my friends. He knows what it's like to desire to transition out of this body of death. He was made like us in every way. He was tempted just like us, but without sin. This is all of our hope. Listen to Paul again in Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. We're all groaning together, Christian. And the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Every single one of us is groaning and waiting and longing for our bodies to be redeemed and transformed from the effects of sin and death. And the hope of the gospel is that if we put our trust in Jesus, if we believe his word is more true than what we think or what we feel, if we repent of our sin, meaning we agree with him that to live outside of his design and purpose for us is sin— And we turn from that sin to him for mercy and forgiveness with a desire for new obedience. Even if that desire is like a barely burning candle about to go out, he will accept us. And he'll give us everything we need for life and godliness. 
Before we pray, let me say this one last thing. One of the hardest parts about writing this sermon was that I could not say everything. And so if you would like to talk about this topic, my office door is wide open. Please come and see me. Let's pray. Father, help us to be grateful for your design for us. Help us to be people who humbly submit to the realities of our life that you have put in place for our good, for the good of the church, for the good of each other, for the good of a lost and dying world, and so that your glory and who you really are will be accurately and truly seen by the world through your church. God, help us lean into this glorious, beautiful reality. Help us not believe that some worldly philosophy is offering us some better view of life than what you give us in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.